Section 10 of Institutes of the Christian Religion. Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion. Book 3 by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 4, Part 1 penitence as explained in the sophistical jargon of the schoolmen widely different from the purity required by the gospel of confession and satisfaction the divisions of this chapter are one the orthodox doctrine of repentance being already expounded the false doctrine is refuted in the present chapter a general summary survey being at the same time taken of the doctrine of the schoolmen Section 1, 2. 2. Its separate parts are afterwards examined. Contrition, section 2 and 3. Confession, section 4 to 20. Sanctification from section 20 to the end of the chapter. Sections 1. Errors of the schoolmen in delivering the doctrine of repentance. 1. Errors in defining it four different definitions considered two absurd division three vain and puzzling questions four mode in which they entangle themselves two the false doctrine of the schoolmen necessary to be refuted of contrition the view of it examined three true and genuine contrition four auricular confession whether or not of divine authority arguments of canonists and schoolmen allegorical argument founded on judaism two answers reason why christ sent the lepers to the priests five another allegorical argument answer six a third argument from two passages of scripture these passages expounded. 7. Confession proved not to be of divine authority. The use of it free for almost 1,200 years after Christ. Its nature, when enacted into a law. Confirmation from the history of the Church. A representation of the ancient auricular confession still existing among the papists to bear judgment against them confession abolished in the church of constantinople eight this mode of confession disapproved by chrysostom as shown by many passages nine false confession being thus refuted the confession enjoined by the word of god is considered mistranslation in the old version proof from scripture that confession should be directed to god alone ten effect of secret confession thus made to god another kind of confession made to men eleven two forms of the latter confession namely public and private public confession either ordinary or extraordinary use of each objection to confession and public prayer answer twelve private confession of two kinds one on our own account two on account of our neighbor use of the former great assistance to be obtained from faithful ministers of the church mode of procedure caution to be used 
13. The use of the latter recommended by Christ. What comprehended under it? Scripture sanctions no other method of confession. 14. The power of the keys exercised in these three kinds of confession. The utility of this power in regard to public confession and absolution. Caution to be observed. 15. Popish errors respecting confession. 1. In enjoining on all the necessity of confessing every sin. 2. Fictitious keys. 3. Pretended mandate to loose and bind. 4. To whom the office of loosing and binding committed. 16. Refutation of the first error from the impossibility of so confessing, as proved by the testimony of David. 17. Refuted farther from the testimony of conscience. Impossible to observe this most rigid obligation. Necessarily leads to despair or indifference. Confirmation of the preceding remarks by an appeal to conscience. 18. Another refutation of the first error from analogy. Some of the whole refutation. Third refutation. Laying down the surest rule of confession. Explanation of the rule. Three objections answered. 19. Fourth objection, namely, that auricular confession does no harm and is even useful. Answer, unfolding the hypocrisy, falsehood, impiety, and monstrous abominations of the patrons of this error. 20. Refutation of the second error. 1. Priests not successors of the apostles. 2. They have not the Holy Spirit, who alone is arbiter of the keys. 21. Refutation of the third error. 1. They are ignorant of the command and promise of Christ. By abandoning the word of God, they run into innumerable absurdities. 22. Objection to the refutation of the third error. Answers, reducing the papists to various absurdities. 23. Refutation of the fourth error. 1. Petitio Principi. 2. Inversion of Ecclesiastical Discipline. Three objections answered. 24. Conclusion of the whole discussion against this fictitious confession. 25. Of Satisfaction, to which the Sophists assign the third place in repentance. Errors and Falsehoods. These views opposed by the terms. 1. Forgiveness. 2. Free Forgiveness. 3. God-destroying iniquities. 4. By and on account of Christ, no need of our satisfaction. 26. Objection, confining the grace and efficacy of Christ within narrow limits. Answers by both John the Evangelist and John the Baptist. Consequence of these answers. 27. Two points violated by the fiction of satisfaction. First, the honor of Christ impaired. Secondly, the conscience cannot find peace. Objection, confining the forgiveness of sins to catechumens, refuted. 28. Objection, founded on the arbitrary distinction between venial and mortal sins. This distinction, insulting to God and repugnant to Scripture. Answer, showing the true distinction in regard to venial sin. 29. Objection, founded on a distinction between guilt and the punishment of it. Answer, 
illustrated by various passages of scripture admirable saying of augustine thirty answer founded on a consideration of the efficacy of christ's death and the sacrifices under the law our true satisfaction thirty one an objection perverting six passages of scripture preliminary observations concerning a twofold judgment on the part of god one for punishment two for correction thirty two two distinctions hence arising objection that god is often angry with his elect answer god in afflicting his people does not take his mercy from them this confirmed by his promise by scripture and the uniform experience of the church distinction between the reprobate and the elect in regard to punishment thirty three second distinction the punishment of the reprobate a commencement of the eternal punishment awaiting them that of the elect designed to bring them to repentance this confirmed by passages of scripture and of the fathers thirty four two uses of this doctrine to the believer in affliction he can believe that god though angry is still favorable to him in the punishment of the reprobate he sees a prelude to their final doom thirty five objection as to the punishment of david answered why all men here subjected to chastisement thirty six objections founded on five other passages answered thirty seven answer continued thirty eight objection founded on passages in the fathers answer with passages from chrysostom and augustine thirty nine these satisfactions had reference to the peace of the church and not to the throne of god the schoolmen have perverted the meaning of some absurd statements by obscure monks one i come now to an examination of what the scholastic sophists teach concerning repentance this i will do as briefly as possible for i leave no intention to take up every point lest this work which i am desirous to frame as a compendium of doctrine should exceed all bounds they have managed to envelop a matter otherwise not much involved in so many perplexities that it will be difficult to find an outlet if once you get plunged but a little way into their mire and first in giving a definition they plainly show they never understood what repentance means for they fasten on some expression in the writings of the fathers which are very far from expressing the nature of repentance for instance that to repent is to deplore past sins and not commit what is to be deplored again that it is to bewail past evils and not to sin to do what is to be bewailed again that it is a kind of grieving revenge punishing in itself what it grieves to have committed again that it is sorrow of heart and bitterness of soul for the evils which the individual has committed or to which he has consented supposing we grant that these things were well said by fathers though if one were inclined to dispute it were not difficult to deny it they were not however said with a view of describing repentance but only of exhorting penitents not again to fall into the same faults from which they had been delivered but if all descriptions of this kind are to be converted into definitions there are others which have as good a title to be added for instance 
the following sentence of chrysostom repentance is a medicine for the cure of sin a gift bestowed from above an admirable virtue a grace surpassing the power of laws moreover the doctrine which they afterwards deliver is somewhat worse than their definition for they are so keenly bent on external exercises that all you can gather from immense volumes is that repentance is a discipline and austerity which serves partly to subdue the flesh partly to chasten and punish sins of internal renovation of mind bringing with it true amendment of life there is a strange silence no doubt they talk much of contrition and attrition torment the soul with many scruples and involve it in great trouble and anxiety but when they seem to have deeply wounded the heart they cure all its bitterness by a slight sprinkling of ceremonies repentance thus shrewdly defined they divide into contrition of the heart confession of the mouth and satisfaction of works this is not more logical than the definition though they would be thought to have spent their whole lives in framing syllogisms but if any one argues from the definition a mode of argument prevalent with dialecticians that a man may weep over his past sins and not commit things that cause weeping may bewail past evils and not commit things that are to be bewailed may punish what he is grieved for having committed though he does not confess it with the mouth how will they defend their division for if he may be a true penitent and not confess repentance can exist without confession if they answer that this division refers to repentance regarded as a sacrament or is to be understood of repentance in its most perfect form which they do not comprehend in their definitions the mistake does not rest with me let them blame themselves for not defining more purely and clearly when any matter is discussed i certainly am dull enough to refer everything to the definition as the hinge and foundation of the whole discussion but granting that this is a license which masters have let us now survey the different parts in their order in omitting as frivolous several things which they bend with solemn brow as mysteries i do it not from ignorance it were not very difficult to dispose of all those points which they plume themselves on their acuteness and subtlety in discussing but i consider it a sacred duty not to trouble the reader to no purpose with such absurdities it is certainly easy to see from the questions which they move and agitate and in which they miserably entangle themselves that they are peeling of things they know not of this nature are the following whether repentance of one sin is pleasing to god while there is an obstinate adherence to other sins again whether punishments divinely indicted are available for satisfaction again whether repentance can be several times repeated for mortal sins whereas they grossly and wickedly define that daily repentance has to do with none but venial sins in like manner with gross error they greatly torment themselves with the saying of jerome that repentance is a second plank after shipwreck herein they show that they have never awoke from brutish stupor so as to obtain a decent view of the thousandth part of their sins two i would have my readers to observe 
that the dispute here relates not to a matter of no consequence but to one of the most important of all that is the forgiveness of sins for while they require three things in repentance namely compunction of heart confession of the mouth and satisfaction of work they at the same time teach that these are necessary to obtain the pardon of sins if there is anything in the whole compass of religion which it is of importance to us to know this certainly is one of the most important that is to perceive and rightly hold by what means what rule what terms with what facility or difficulty forgiveness of sins may be obtained unless our knowledge here is clear and certain our conscience can have no rest at all no peace with god no confidence or security but is continually trembling fluctuating boiling and distracted dreads hates and shuns the presence of god but if forgiveness of sins depends on the conditions to which they bind it nothing can be more wretched and deplorable than our situation contrition they represent as the first step in obtaining pardon and they exact it as due that is full and complete meanwhile they decide not when one may feel secure of having performed this contrition in due measure i admit that we are bound strongly and incessantly to urge every man bitterly to lament his sins and thereby stimulate himself more and more to dislike and hate them for this is the repentance to salvation not to be repented of second corinthians chapter seven verse ten but when such bitterness of sorrow is demanded as may correspond to the magnitude of the offence and be weighed in the balance with confidence of pardon miserable consciences are sadly perplexed and tormented when they see that the contrition due for sin is laid upon them and yet that they have no measure of what is due so as to enable them to determine that they have made full payment if they say we are to do what in us lies we are always brought back to the same point for when will any man venture to promise himself that he has done his utmost in bewailing sin therefore when consciences after a lengthened struggle and long contests with themselves find no haven in which they may rest as a means of alleviating their condition in some degree they extort sorrow and wring out tears in order to perfect their contrition three if they say that this is calumny on my part let them come forward and point out a single individual who by this doctrine of contrition has not either been driven to despair or has not instead of true opposed pretended fear to the justice of god we have elsewhere observed that forgiveness of sins never can be obtained without repentance because none but the afflicted and those wounded by a consciousness of sins can sincerely implore the mercy of god but we at the same time added that repentance cannot be the cause of the forgiveness of sins and we also did away with the torment of souls the dogma that it must be performed as due our doctrine was that the soul looked not to its own compunction or its own tears but fixed both eyes on the mercy of god alone only we observed that those who labor and are heavy laden are called by christ seeing he was sent to preach good tidings to the meek to bind up the broken-hearted 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to comfort all that mourn hence the pharisees were excluded because full of their own righteousness they acknowledged not their own poverty and despisers because regardless of the divine anger they sought no remedy for their wickedness such persons neither labor nor are heavy laden are not broken-hearted bound nor imprisoned but there is a great difference between teaching that forgiveness of sins is merited by a full and complete contrition which the sinner never can give and instructing him to hunger and thirst after the mercy of god that recognizing his wretchedness his turmoil weariness and captivity you may show him where he should seek refreshment rest and liberty in fine teach him in his humility to give glory to god four confession has ever been a subject of keen contest between the canonists and the scholastic theologians the former contending that confession is of divine authority the latter insisting on the contrary that it is merely enjoined by ecclesiastical constitution in this contest great effrontery has been displayed by the theologians who have corrupted and violently wrested every passage of scripture they have quoted in their favor and when they saw that even thus they could not gain their object those who wished to be thought particularly acute had recourse to the evasion that confession is of divine authority in regard to the substance but that it afterwards received its form from positive enactment thus the silliest of these squibblers refer the citation to divine authority from its being said adam where art thou genesis chapter three verses nine and twelve and also the exception from adam having replied as if excepting the women whom thou gavest to be with me but say that the form of both was appointed by civil law let us see by what arguments they prove that this confession formed or unformed is a divine commandment the lord they say sent the lepers to the priests matthew chapter eight verse four what did he send them to confession whoever heard tell that the levitical priests were appointed to hear confession here they resort to allegory the priests were appointed by the mosaic law to discern between leper and leper sin is spiritual leprosy therefore it belongs to the priests to decide upon it before i answer i would ask in passing why if this passage makes them judges of spiritual leprosy they claim the cognizance of natural and carnal leprosy this forsooth is not to play upon scripture the law gives the cognizance of leprosy to the levitical priests let us usurp this to ourselves sin is spiritual leprosy let us also have cognizance of sin i now give my answer there being a change of the priesthood there must of necessity be a change of the law all the sacerdotal functions were transferred to christ and in him fulfilled and ended hebrews chapter seven verse twelve to him alone therefore all the rights and honors of the priesthood have been transferred if they are so fond then of hunting out allegories let them set christ before them as the only priest and place full and universal jurisdiction on his tribunal this we will readily admit besides there is an incongruity in their allegory 
it classes a merely civil enactment among ceremonies why then does christ send the lepers to the priests lest the priests should be charged with violating the law which ordained that the person cured of leprosy should present himself before the priest and be purified by the offering of a sacrifice he orders the lepers who had been cleansed to do what the law required go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as moses commanded for a testimony unto them luke chapter five verse seventeen and assuredly this miracle would be a testimony to them they had pronounced them lepers they now pronounce them cured whether they would or not they are forced to become witnesses to the miracles of christ christ allows them to examine the miracle and they cannot deny it yet as they still quibble they have need of a testimony so it is elsewhere said this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations matthew chapter twenty four verse fourteen again ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the gentiles matthew chapter ten verse eighteen that is in order that in the judgment of gods they might be more fully convicted but if they prefer taking the view of chrysostom he shows that this was done by christ for the sake of the jews also that he might not be regarded as a violator of the law but we are ashamed to appeal to the authority of any man in a matter so clear when christ declares that he left the legal right of the priests entire as professed enemies of the gospel who were always intent on making a clamor if their mouths were not stopped wherefore let the popish priests in order to retain this privilege openly make common cause with those whom it was necessary to restrain by forcible means from speaking evil of christ for there is here no reference to his true ministers five they draw their second argument from the same fountain i mean allegory as if allegories were of much avail in confirming any doctrine but indeed let them avail if those which i am able to produce are not more specious than theirs they say then that the lord after raising lazarus commanded his disciples to lose him and let him go john chapter eleven verse forty four their first statement is untrue we nowhere read that the lord said this to the disciples and it is much more probable that he spoke to the jews who were standing by that from there being no suspicion of fraud the miracle might be more manifest and his power might be the more conspicuous from his raising the dead without touching him by a mere word in the same way i understand that our lord to leave no ground of suspicion to the jews wished them to roll back the stone feel the stench perceive the sure signs of death see him rise by the mere power of a word and first handle him when alive and this is the view of chrysostom but granting that it was said to the disciples what can they gain by it that the lord gave the apostles the power of losing how much more aptly and dexterously might we allegorize and say that by this symbol the lord designed to teach his followers to lose those whom he raises up that is not to bring to remembrance the sins which he himself had forgotten not to condemn as sinners those whom he had acquitted 
not still to upbraid those whom he had pardoned not to be stern and severe in punishing while he himself was merciful and ready to forgive certainly nothing should more incline us to pardon than the example of the judge who threatens that he will be inexorable to the rigid and inhumane let them go now and vend their allegories six they now come to closer quarters while they support their view by passages of scripture which they think clearly in their favor those who came to john's baptism confessed their sins and james bids us confess our sins one to another james chapter five verse sixteen it is not strange that those who wished to be baptized confessed their sins it has already been mentioned that john preached the baptism of repentance baptized with water unto repentance whom then could he baptize but those who confessed that they were sinners baptism is a symbol of the forgiveness of sins and who could be admitted to receive the symbol but sinners acknowledging themselves as such they therefore confessed their sins that they might be baptized nor without good reason does james enjoin us to confess our sins one to another but if they would attend to what immediately follows they would perceive that this gives them little sport the words are confess your sins one to another and pray one for another he joins together mutual confession and mutual prayer if then we are to confess to priests only we are also to pray for them only what it would even follow from the words of james that priests alone can confess in saying that we are to confess mutually he must be addressing those only who can hear the confession of others he says allelus mutually by turns or if they prefer it reciprocally but those only can confess reciprocally who are fit to hear confession this being a privilege which they bestow upon priests only we also leave them the office of confessing to each other have done then with such frivolous absurdities and let us receive the true meaning of the apostle which is plain and simple first that we are to deposit our infirmities in the breasts of each other with the view of receiving mutual counsel sympathy and comfort and secondly that mutually conscious of the infirmities of our brethren we are to pray to the lord for them why then quote james against us who so earnestly insist on acknowledgment of the divine mercy no man can acknowledge the mercy of god without previously confessing his own misery nay we pronounce every man to be anathema who does not confess himself a sinner before god before his angels before the church in short before all men the scripture has concluded all under sin that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before god that god alone may be justified and exalted galatians chapter three verse twenty two and romans chapter three verses nine and nineteen seven I wonder at their effrontery in venturing to maintain that the confession of which they speak is of divine authority. We admit that the use of it is very ancient, but we can easily prove that at one time it was free. It certainly appears, from their own records, that no law or constitution respecting it was enacted before the days of Innocent the Third. 
surely if there had been a more ancient law they would have fastened on it instead of being satisfied with the decree of the council of lateral and so making themselves ridiculous even to children in other matters they hesitate not to coin fictitious decrees which they ascribe to the most ancient councils that they may blind the eyes of the simple by veneration for antiquity in this instance it has not occurred to them to practice this deception and hence themselves being witnesses three centuries have not yet elapsed since the bridle was put and the necessity of confession imposed by innocent the third and to say nothing of the time the mere barbarism of the terms used destroys the authority of the law for when these worthy fathers enjoined that every person of both sexes utriusque sexus must once a year confess his sins to his own priest men of wit humorously object that the precept binds hermaphrodites only and has no application to any one who is either a male or a female a still grosser absurdity has been displayed by their disciples who are unable to explain what is meant by one's own priest proprius sacerdos let all the hired ravers of the pope babble as they may we hold that christ is not the author of this law which compels men to enumerate their sins nay that twelve hundred years elapsed after the resurrection of christ before any such law was made and that consequently this tyranny was not introduced until piety and doctrine were extinct and pretended pastors had usurped to themselves unbridled license there is clear evidence in historians and other ancient writers to show that this was a politic discipline introduced by bishops not a law enacted by christ or the apostles out of many i will produce only one passage which will be no obscure proof sozomen relates that this constitution of the bishops was carefully observed in the western churches but especially at rome thus intimating that it was not the universal custom of all churches he also says that one of the presbyters was specially appointed to take charge of this duty this abundantly confutes their falsehoods as to the keys being given to the whole priesthood indiscriminately for this purpose since the function was not common to all the priests but especially belonged to the one priest whom the bishop had appointed to it he it was the same who at present in each of the cathedral churches has the name of penitentiary who had cognizance of offences which were more heinous and required to be rebuked for the sake of example he afterwards adds that the same custom existed at constantinople until a certain matron while pretending to confess was discovered to have used it as a cloak to cover her intercourse with the deacon in consequence of that crime nectarius the bishop of that church a man famous for learning and sanctity abolished the custom of confessing here then let these asses prick up their ears if auricular confession was a divine law how could nectarius have dared to abolish or remodel it nectarius a holy man of god approved by the suffrage of all antiquity will they charge with heresy and schism with the same vote they will condemn the church of constantinople in which sozomen affirms that the custom of confessing was not only disguised for a time but even in his own memory abolished nay 
let them charge with affections not only constantinople but all the eastern churches which if they say true disregarded an inviolable law enjoined on all christians end of section ten recording by shenna sayre fresno california